All right, welcome to another episode of the Crown Council's Mentor of the Month program. And this is just a special series devoted to students and young doctors looking for mentorship and leadership when it comes to choosing what comes next in your profession, what practice to join, and how to navigate those waters in choosing. So I'm Stuart Anderson. This is just a short introduction before we get to Audrey Wendell and T-Bank. She is a banker. So this episode is all about banking, loans, finance, money, debt, you name it. Audrey covers it. This is like banking 101, or I guess we could say banking 501. Like it's so good. And Audrey has all the information that you would need to make some great financial decisions when it comes to consolidating debt, taking on debt, managing your credit score, managing your character, your cash flow, your collateral. Uh, She gives her top four things that all young dentists and young students need to be doing to make sure that they are setting themselves up in a great position to borrow money and and take care of themselves financially. Stuff like uh, keeping your credit in check, knowing what's happening with your credit and how to do that. Uh, Understanding your own personal financials and also not being afraid to go into debt. So she gives some great advice and mentorship on all of those things that she's experienced for a a lifetime. Uh, So anyway, enjoy. Uh, Steve does most of the interview as he's got a great relationship uh, with Audrey and T-Bank through his career. Uh, But enjoy, and hopefully you learn a lot of stuff uh, from Audrey Wendell. Thanks. All right, welcome to the Crown Council's Mentor of the Month podcast. This is a special series devoted to students and young docs looking for some mentorship and advice on what to do next after dental school. Uh, I'm Stuart Anderson, joined by Steve Anderson. Welcome, Steve. Hey, hey. Howdy. And Audrey Wendell from T-Bank. Welcome, Audrey. Hello. We're grateful to have Audrey. Audrey's down in, uh, she's in Dallas with Steve and uh, is part of a group called T-Bank. If you don't know, uh, inside the Crown Council, we have a group of business partners. These are resource partners who are devoted to helping dental practices create a culture of success in their practice. So they're not a group of businesses that are devoted to selling items to the group. Uh, They are partners, a resource to dental practices. And Audrey is part of that group who has agreed to come on and share her great wisdom, great knowledge (laughs) of all things banking. Um, Audrey joined T-Bank back in 2006 as market president in dental, professional, and executive lending with the primary responsibility of developing the bank's national dental lending platform from the ground up. You were there from the very beginning. That's right. Yep. Created the dental lending program. So uh, Audrey and Steve, I know, have had a a, a great history together in the dental world, um, inside uh, banking and and practice development. So we're excited to have you on, Audrey, today to talk about... um, what these young docs can do when it comes to making great decisions with their money, or I guess not their money. <laughs> Other people's money. Other people's right. money. <laughs> so well, do you want to give us, yeah, yeah go ahead, Steve. Let me start out. Um, one of the things I, I love about what you do <clears throat> is the, the organization that you represent, which is T-Bank. T-Bank may or may not be a, a bank that anybody listening has heard of. T-Bank specializes in the dental industry. It was started with the specific purpose of making uh, lending for dentists for different purposes easier 
So my personal opinion, I'm saying this, not you, uh, I think it would be safe to say T-Bank probably knows more as a lender about the dental industry, maybe than you know, your basic bank for sure. But this is a clear, clear focus that you guys have as, as dentistry uh, and understanding a dental practice. And uh, that's what you do. Dentistry is what you do. That's right. Yep. Been doing a long and, time. Uh, so what, maybe we could start out and let's talk about student debt. Uh, dentistry is now the most expensive profession education wise that you can get. Uh, a lot of dental students are coming out of dental school with a lot of debt. And uh, so knowing how to manage that debt, what to do with it over the course of your career, uh, maybe you could start out with uh, what you know about student debt, mistakes that dentists, young dentists typically make with student debt, and what your recommendations are there. Okay. No problem. So um, when, when it comes to student debt, um, banks, especially banks like ours, we understand that's, that's what the reality of the situation of this industry is. You're going to have student debt. So I wouldn't be overly fearful of it. We understand it. And we understand that there's cash flow driven businesses out there and dentistry happens to be one of them. Um, but some of the things to keep in mind um, when we look at people and their student loans is we're going to look at their history with their student loans. You're going to have opportunities to defer. You'll have opportunities to consolidate. Um, you're probably going to end up with 14 various loans that come throughout as you've borrowed the money. You'll look at your credit report and you'll see multiple lines of these student loans. So each one might even have a different interest rate. So the rates are going to be a little uh, challenging. You might have some that are lower, some that are higher, depending on when you borrowed the money. Um, but at the end of the day, it's something we understand is, is it's a necessary um, thing that you have to have when you graduate. So the main thing is to maintain anytime you move, anytime you've um, made any changes to your address. One of the uh, concerns that we have when we have a, a doctor that comes to us and we have student loans that are showing us past due is it's nine times out of 10, it's because they moved and they didn't transfer their information over. And now you've got this third party out there trying to track you down and that affects your credit. So um, just keep that in mind when you um, have these student debts, stay on top of them, know who you're sending your money to. If you can do it electronically, always choose that because that way you know for sure you'll never be late. Um, even when it comes to just paying the minimum payment. I always tell my borrowers with credit cards or any other debt that they have, but especially with student loans, just get that on an ACH, which is an automatic transfer. That way it doesn't matter if you move and there's paper, there's, there's no paper trail trying to find you from home to home. So um, that's one of my, my best advice, a piece of advice that I can give to anybody uh, is to set up electronic payments. Um, the next thing would be down the road when you get established, you don't have to sit with those same student debts. You, you can consolidate the debt. Um, we happen to be a bank that once you're established and have some equity in a practice, we actually have consolidated several student loans because our rates were lower than what they were seeing. You could, have a, you could have a rate of 6%, you could have a rate of 4% and another rate at 8%. They're all over the board. So consolidating and putting them all in one payment does help. The other thing is you don't have to take all of them out. You could just, take a portion of them and consolidate those, the highest rates that are out there. 
So if you've got a 6% rate, an 8% rate, and, a, and then you have a 3% rate, we don't necessarily have to refinance the 3% rate, just consolidate those larger, um, the higher interest rate loans if you can. And so, again, so make the minimum about that, <clears throat> on uh -huh. that one, when you consolidate student debt <clears throat> as a bank, do you have to have collateral? So do you do that in conjunction with another loan or can I do that alone? Great question. By itself? Great question. We do, we do need to have some sort of collateral. Um, if, if we do an, uh, an unsecured loan, it would be over a very, very short period of time. It would not be beneficial because the payment would go up so much. So we usually do it at the time that they're looking at refinancing their practice loan, for instance, or even if they're buying a practice and there's some, some room in there to include it. Um, so there's, there's usually an event that occurs. And then when we're looking at their overall finances and debt and income, we look at all of their debt and say, you know, why don't we go ahead and roll these student loans in so that you can um, use your practice as the collateral. Um, even though there's, it's largely unsecured, it's, it's a lot of goodwill, but it's still a blanket lien on a business. So that does help us get over that uh, fact that it's really just student debt with, that's just uncollateralized. So we just add the practices as collateral for that. Uh, how, how fast um, <clears throat> do you recommend somebody pay down their debt? So for example, some of this, some of the student debt's very low interest rate. Mm -hmm. uh, Others are higher, but let's say you have a low interest, a low interest rate loan. Uh, what's your recommendation? Is it paid off as fast as you can, or is it, you know, use that as leverage to do other things? If you know, if I were sitting here with two or three hundred thousand dollars worth of student debt, what would you recommend I do? Well, and it's going to depend on where you are. If you're just now graduating, let them sit and move on because you do need to have some credit uh, worthiness in order to borrow money. So that is one way to exhibit your, your strong credit history. Number two is you want to maximize your cash flow internally for yourself or what you're paying for your living expenses. If you're going to planning on buying a house, planning on starting up a, a practice, planning on acquiring a practice, buying in, it's better cash flow wise not to take all of your cash and, and pay down those student loans quickly. You'll get there. Usually it's within that five to 10 year period. I start seeing doctors that are accelerating their payments, but I, I highly recommend staying away from that for the first three to five years because they are typically pretty good rates. Um, so if there's some that concern you more than others, maybe roll that in with, with a, another potential loan. But um, I would I would say three to five years, at least get some payment history going. Okay, so let's talk about cash flow for just a minute because that may or may not be a term that everybody who's listening is familiar with. Yes. So if I'm gonna I'm gonna stay current with my payments, right. but when you say maximize cash flow, what am I doing with the money? Am I spending right. it? Am I saving it? What am I doing with it instead exactly. of paying down the loan? Right. So if we're talking, um, depending on where you are, if you're start, if you're just getting out of school or if you're in the second or third year of associateship and you're planning on maybe buying in, um, if you're looking at a three to five year um, out of school and you're looking at you know potentially purchasing a home, there are different avenues for that. But I always recommend if you can um, to keep those the, as much income as you have coming in. Um, is try and save as much as you can, pay off the higher or pay your higher interest rate loans 
get those, um, keep, keep those on, paid on time. And that way you've got something to fall back on when you're an associate two or three years in the, down the road and you're, you're ready to pull the trigger and either buy or, 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 or um, a start a practice. You've got some sort of liquidity. So cash flow is just taking, you know, you know let's say you, you take in $100 and you have $40 um, in expenses, you're left with $60. So what do you do with those $60, right? So you have living expenses. So 40, let's say 40%, $40 of that is debt. You got 60 that you need to spend on living expenses and potentially putting money away. So out of that 60, I say as much as you can try and save it. Um, put it into a money market account that is actually giving you a return or putting it um, in some sort of interest bearing a deposit account and let that accumulate um, as much as you can. So when you down the road, then let, let's go. Now, if you're looking at as a banker, if you're looking at um, a dentist, that's maybe three to five years out of practice and they're either going to buy, maybe buy an existing practice uh, buy into a practice, uh, mm-hmm. maybe even start a practice. But when you when you look at the credit worthiness of an individual, what are your priorities? What are you looking for? Uh, number one would be credit. <laughs> That's the first thing we look at. Uh, you have banks, a good credit score. You have a good credit score, but not only credit score, we, we still haven't quite identified what the algorithms are for, for how they come up with some of these. Nor, I, nor will we ever. <laughs> I, I am at a loss. I don't know. I have people that have uh, excellent credit, have never you know, missed a, a loan payment and they're out, their FICO score is 740. And I have someone that's got a lot of debt out there and they might have a 770. So I try not to get too wrapped up in the scores, but when you're in the sevens, you're typically doing okay in the 700s. But what we look for with credit is, have you paid your bills? Have you made your payments? Do you have a 30 day late? Do you have a mortgage late is the worst past due you could have. Just put that stamp that in your brain because that not only does it affect your credit score the most, it is the one that is a little surprising for a bank when you pull credit and you see that um, because that that's your primary living. And so uh, somebody gets behind, Oh, we forgot. We didn't know where we put it. Nowadays it's, it's a little tough to get around that because there are, you know, you have automatic payments. There's no excuse for that. Um, poor management. So we look for how do they manage it? So we have a different word for that character. So we associate there's three C's of credit. There you go. That's the first one is character. Okay, so character is the first one. You're going to share us the other two. So right. Yes. So that shows our character. Now we already talked about cash flow. So okay. I already talked about that. So that's the, that's the second C and collateral. Those are the three C's of credit. So you hear this a lot. Other banks might switch out one for another, but those are the three main. And when you say what's the most important, right there, credit first, cash flow comes second, and then our collateral. So because these are practice loans, largely unsecured, we really rely on the first two. (laughs) So what I brought to the table to T-Bank years ago was what we call global cash flow analysis. And that means I don't just look at what the business can do and how the business pays the debt, but I also look because these are closely held companies. That's what dental practices are, they're closely held. We have to look at the practices doing well. How is that borrower managing their personal life, their expenses, their debt, their obligations? And that may not show up on their credit report. Um, alimony, child support, uh, just general uh, paying your cable bill, those don't always show up on your credit. 
So we actually have a form so that we know exactly what you're paying out of that. So cash flow is, is number two, is we want to make sure you're managing your cash flow. And then number three would just be your collateral. What are you putting up? What are you, what are you offering the bank to take on that risk? Because we don't typically require a huge down payment for these loans. As you know, Steve, in this, this industry, people can buy a practice and put little to nothing down um, just because they're, they're, they're established and they can, they're already throwing off cash flow. They're already providing somebody an income. Um, so those are, those would be the main things to look for from, from a banker's perspective. Those are the three things I look for. Hey, Audrey. So, oh, yes. go ahead, Steve. Go ahead, Steve. No, I just wondered, you know, as I look at these dental students and I, and I talk to them, they're coming out of school with student debt. I'm buying a house. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to buy a practice. I mean, at what point do you say to them, this, we're over, this is too much? Is, is there like a point where you're like, hey, you should pump the brakes? Or like, what advice do you give as they continue to just get more and more and more debt as they leave dental school? Um, the, the, big, the main answer to that, Stuart, is going to be how much income are you earning? And have you done the math and seen, you know, do you need to buy an $800,000 home or can you buy a modest home first? We don't want to keep people from buying homes. We, we know you're going to have a monthly living expense. So whether you're paying $1,500 on a mortgage or you're paying $1,500 on rent, for us, we understand there's going to be heavy debt, but we, don't, we want to make sure it's not exorbitant. Be realistic. Live within your means. That's, that would be a, a big bit of advice from us. Um, you, know, you might not just dive into that big house right away. I mean, we, I've been nine tenths the way through a loan and then uh, had a doctor say, hey, by the way, we're closing on a house next week. Is that going to affect my credit? Is that going to uh, affect yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah, it kind of does. <laughs> it, it does affect it because now all the analysis that we've done to say, hey, this doctor has, an, has a strong income that they're walking into and they have a contract to work or, they've, or they've, they're buying in and we know that they're going to make they're going to take home $8,000 a month and this is how much they're going to spend. Okay. We've done the math. Now, when you throw in an additional $3,000 that we haven't accounted for, now you're strapped. Now you're thinking every month you're living paycheck to paycheck to paycheck. And that's what we try and tell people is live modestly, make sure that you're not over, um, overspending um, in those first few years, because it's tough, ju- you know, jumping in, you know, we, you know, sometimes have a concern that, you know, are they really going to enjoy what they do coming out of school? They haven't actually worked in a work environment yet. They haven't actually been in a practice where someone else might be running the show, right? There's going to be other employees in the practice. There's going to be scheduling in the practice. Patients, how are they going to react to the patient? You don't need to also worry about taking on a huge mortgage payment, right? So just managing that is, is what I would highly recommend. Is, uh, <laughs> How, how far in advance would you <clears throat> recommend a dentist start talking to a banker before they're going to make a practice purchase, buy-in? How far in advance? Well, that's a great question. That's going to vary. Um, if they're looking at a startup, um, I think the sooner um, is, is better because now you really have to think of, okay, how, how much are you going to need? And we, you know, there could be a ramp up period, different banks will provide that type of lending and they'll usually do a ramp up period for you. But if you're starting it from scratch, there is a ramp up period of acquiring patients. You're not going to open the door and have a full schedule. So that one, I think startups, I would start within like six months ahead. 
what realistically am I going to be starting? Am I going to start a practice that is an eight op practice and hope that the patients come, or am I going to start a three, four op practice and just build into it? So that would be a lot sooner. I think if you're looking to acquire a practice or buy in, I think three months is more than ample time to do that. I have, I've been lucky. I've got a lot of them that just in July and August said, Hey, we're looking for a January one close. Bankers love that because you got plenty of time to get it going, but you know, it's a little early and we might take a look at it and say, okay, everything looks great. Now we're pre-calling you, but the sooner, you know, whether you have a credit problem or there's a potential cash flow problem with that practice, maybe it's overpriced. The sooner, you know, that the better it is. So I would give that three months in advance just so that you can get started. Um, on that. Right, let's, talk, let's talk about a buy-in okay. scenario. So this is a, a young dentist that's going to buy into an existing practice is going to be a, a partner at some level of ownership. What typically what's the construct of that? What do you require from the young dentist? What do you require from the other owner dentists in order to get the buy-in done? Okay. So there's a, there's a couple things that, that we see out there that our bank, every bank's going to be a little different. I mean, we, we specialize in dental other banks do, but there might be bigger. They have different requirements, maybe a little more red tape. So what we usually see is when the doctor buys in, they buy in a, a small percentage and they base that percentage on their production. So if they're buying, if they're doing 30% of the production right now, they're going to buy in 30%. That is typically what we see. So if they haven't stepped foot in the practice, that's going to throw it all off. They don't know what their, they don't know what their production is going to be. They're just going to buy in. But if they're associating, what we see is they associate for maybe 12 to 18 months and then buy in, not all, but I'd say a large majority of them do. And we look to see really, we call them splits. How does it look? Who's doing the majority of the work, right? Who's doing this? So what happens now when he buys in or she buys in 30%? What is their income going to be? And is it worth it for them to buy in for X dollars to get that? So there's a valuation that's done. They come in and they become a 30% borrower. Then they come in later on, buy an additional 10, additional 20. And over time, They'll either have another partner come in or they just buy them all the way out. We've seen every bit of those scenarios. It can be one of you know, five different scenarios for those buy-ins. But here's an important part. We talked about the third C, which is collateral. So the collateral, when you have a buy-in, we usually see the buyer come in and start their own entity. So most of these are S-corporations. Some of them file as a Schedule C. It's a lot that they're going to learn. <laughs> this is probably a lot, probably too much information, but some banks will require the seller to pay off, have, have this new bank that's providing the buyer with the money, pay off any debt related to the practice. Meaning the seller could have a great loan out there at 3% or you know, any given loan, they feel is a really strong loan. So it's important for the buyer and seller to talk and say, I'm going to XYZ bank for my financing they're going to have you move your loan to them because they want to first lean on all assets in that business. Because if you're buying in 30% and something goes wrong, are you going to you know, have a 30% of a chair or it's pretty hard to divide all that up. Right. So it makes sense. What we do that's a little different is we don't necessarily require that seller to pay off their loan but we look at their financials overall with the practice and personally for that global 
And if they're fine and make their payments and there's no struggle there, we'll just take a lien on the new assets, which is the assets that are being sold to that doctor. So that the, the buy-in doctor is buying 30%, they'll start their own entity and the bank will just put a lien on that to not encumber the seller. Because we know it's going to take both sides to keep that boat afloat. Um, and in, in exchange for that, we usually will have the seller guarantee for maybe a short period of time or maybe the full term of the loan, depending on the strength of the loan. And that's not yeah. uncommon these days because yeah. we want to make sure this is important for a seller, not necessarily for a buyer. But if something were to go wrong with that buyer, the bank could go foreclose on 30% of the practice, which is you know, probably meaning that we could go in and say, hey, we, we, this loan is, is in default. We didn't have a guarantor. We're, we're foreclosing on that amount. Very extreme scenario. And luckily, knock, knock, I've not had to deal with that. But sellers are protecting themselves by guaranteeing it because the bank has to go to any borrower or guarantor in order to remedy the loan. So they have to go to them. It's, it's by default. They must go to them and provide them an option to secure the loan and say, I'm going to take over that payment where, where that doctor's exiting the practice. I'm going to take over the payment until I find another buyer. Got it. So that's, in other words, as a bank, you're required to do that before you foreclose. That's exactly right. You need to notify all borrowers and all guarantors. So when we have a guarantor, the guarantor even knows if the buyer has a 10 day late, they're notified the same time the buyer is the borrower, you know, the buyer slash borrower. So it's, it's good because I'll get an email and it might even have been a fluke. They missed their payment, their bill was in and the seller will go, wait, you know, so-and-so is late on their loan. I got a 10 day notice and I'll say, oh no, no, they took care of it. It was a billing error or, you know, so it's good. It keeps them everybody, apart. Everybody knows. It's kind of like when, you know, if yep. somebody gives you a gift from Costco, you know, if you return it, Costco lets the buyer know that. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> everybody knows. <laughs> okay. Right. A next scenario, let's say it's a buyout. So uh, younger dentist is, is going to buy out an older dentist exit. So the older dentist is going to exit completely. Uh, how is that scenario different than a buy-in? So now what we worry about is what we call attrition. Um, how long has that buyer been in that practice? It, the, the, the longer they've established the relationship with not only the staff, but the patients. And again, that'll be different for specialty practices, of course, but general doctors, general practitioners, it's very important what's, what will happen? Will those patients leave because they've been seeing Dr. Jones for 35 years and this guy is just not my cup of tea and I'm just going to wait, I'm going to bide my time until he leaves. So we build in what's maybe 20 to 25% general attrition. So we assume what happens if we just take out 20 to 25% of the revenues and assume some those patients are not coming back. And if that number still works, we're pretty comfortable moving forward. And I don't even think it's that high. It's pretty conservative to do to look at it that way from a bank standpoint, but it does help us get a better feel of if that were the case. So the buyer really needs to get established with the patients and we rely on the seller to do that. So we like to see a transition period at 30, 60, 90 days. If they've already been in the practice, it's just a matter of having that seller have the, the, the new buyer work on their family's teeth, right? That's, we, we've shared this for years and years, right? I think I've even heard you guys mention it. It's the trust, it's building the trust of, hey, you know, this is, 
you know, Dr. Lee's coming in, I'm, I'm moving out, but Hey, he just worked on my wife's teeth yesterday. He did a full mouth restoration on her, or my son went to see him. Or, you know, so that starts to build and establish that relationship and uh, makes the, not only the, the buyer feel better, but the bank feel better. And that the handoff is not going to be, I'm out. Thanks for the money. I'm out the door. Um, so the transition is super important. So we asked that, how do you plan to transition the seller out? Is it over a month? Is it over a year? But the seller also has to be willing to let go and also make that transition and not hang on in your life that these are my patients and they get very um, tight with them and they feel that they're handing off their legacy. <laughs> so they need to be willing and open to do that and make a good transition for them. Typical buyout. Uh, let's say the, the practice, somebody can buy a practice for half a million dollars. Will the bank loan a hundred percent? That's a great question. We typically do because um, of the cash flow, but there might be something. Each deal is a little different. It's not a, a, a black and white scenario, uh, depending on sometimes the seller will carry back meaning they'll hold a portion of the loan and get paid monthly like the bank does. That helps us a lot, get over any of the risk. But if it's a buyout and the doctor's already been established in that business, the revenues are already there, there's equity in the practice, then we don't, we've done, we do 100%. Um, if it's, there's a credit issue, we sometimes want for a guarantor. If there's a cash flow issue, we want money. So we say, you need to help. Does that make sense? So you want to put more money in. We want more of their personal investment. And that falls back on what we said earlier, the savings account that I was saying, very important. Don't pay off your student loans right away. Start just saving just so the bank comes back and says, we'd like 10% from you. If you don't, we, we just want something from you to invest in this practice besides just the bank. There's your 10%. Well, I happen to have $80,000 in the bank. And we might say, we don't want all 80 when we want you to have cash flow, but could you put in 30 or 40? That'll make the bank, that'll help us get over the risk and the deal. Makes sense. <clears throat> uh, so short of that, when, you know, buyout, I, if you want to address the startup, maybe address the startup scenario, how that might differ than the other two you mentioned. Right. And there are banks that, that specialize in startup. When I started, 20 plus years ago, that was our flagship product. We really didn't even have acquisitions back then. It was kind of a new thing. Um, we had to learn it. We had to figure out how to underwrite it. Um, so we were used to people coming in and putting up a shingle and, you know, you build patients over time. So now there is a lot more creative banking that's out there. They might say interest only for three months, or they might even defer the payments for six to nine months while you're building your practice. I highly recommend those loans. However, just realize when you do that, you're pushing off the interest to the end of that loan. So people get, they get a payoff two years down the road and it's almost the same amount as they borrowed. So wow. because they're borrowing, they're paying very little interest and hardly anything's going to their principal, which is the amount they actually borrowed. And they panic and they say, wait a minute, how did I only pay 15,000 of my $600,000 loan. Well, because the first year you, you, you know, but it's part of the reality of it was worth it for them because they were able to cash flow throughout those lean build up years or the build up months. Because like I said earlier, 
you're not going to open the door and then you're going to have a full day. It's, you know, however many patients you needed in a day, just open the door and that's going to happen. We understand it takes time. Also takes time for insurance to build up, right? Not maybe 60, 90 day turnaround to even get the insurance to pay you. So it is out there. One thing I do want to mention about startups that I think most doctors don't understand or the pain of until they go through it, is you have to become the, the CEO of your of your own practice. Right. So you are a business owner. You can't avoid the reality of insurance, staffing, hiring, firing, um, all those things, having Monday meetings or morning meetings and you, everything's re- revolving around you. So your, your world isn't just doing the dentistry anymore. Now you're running a business. Yeah. You're running a business. So you are the CEO of your business and have you had a lot of background in doing business and CEO? I don't know how much they're doing in dental school these days. Do you know, Steve? Uh, (laughs) I'm teaching at several of the dental schools and the challenge is just trying to get anybody's attention to think about that everybody's focused on the clinical requirements. So it means a lot more when you're in the middle of it and you have to deal with it. That's right. I know. (laughs) Exactly. I mean, learning financial statements and not turning it over. Oh, that just brings up another good, good point. Having to, when you're a business owner, whether you're a dental practice or not, but dental practices, a lot of these dentists don't want to get involved in the numbers of their business. And I think the numbers one in five can be embezzled because they're not paying attention to what is happening in their front office or their back office. Just it's super important for them to understand not, you don't have to be an accountant, but understand the flow of how, what your fee, your, your patient fees are that are coming in, what your expenses are, how the insurance work. They have to have an understanding of how to, how that works, because it could be a little bit at a time that's being embezzled and over, you know, four or five years, a lot of money they might've been missing. Not, I don't want to put out negative energy on that. I'm just saying it's a reality. And um, we have caught it a couple of times just from, you know, being a, a depositing bank, um, you know, little, little oddities that have gone on and, and discovered, you know, that was the case. I would even even add to that, Audrey, even if you're not an owner of a practice, at the very beginning of the career, get in the habit of checking your your production by provider report every day, no matter what practice is make sure that that have them print out what you produce today and make sure that that matches up with what you did. Right. That's the way to get to get started. Okay. Okay. Um, Quick quiz. Uh You've talked to thousands of dentists over the years. And if you were to consolidate all the younger dentists that you've dealt with and give me the top five Audrey lectures. So it's the speech that you have to give over and over and over and over again. Like if you could just package this and give to everybody. So what, what are the things that you find yourself having to repeat and remind or teach over and over where it's like, Oh, here it is again. And you have to, you know, you have to deliver the news, whatever. So top three, top five, what are the okay, well, keep, keep ta- talking about? The, the number one for me is what we talked about at the very, very beginning. And that is keeping check on your credit, understanding your credit report. Okay. Even though you might not have a lot of student debt, there's, there's people that steal your identity and there's, 
there's just things that happen. You might not even realize that you had a 30 day late on your credit report, understanding it. So what I recommend is go to annualcreditreport.com once a year. Actually, I'm going to lecture the two of you. All of us need to do that. I do it okay. every year. Okay. My husband and I have a contest to see who's got the higher FICO score. We do, <laughs> we do this in January every year. It's a battle, yeah. right? I'm like, oh, you went up two points over me. So that's something to do. I, I recommend to everyone from a banker, please, please, please do that. It doesn't go against your credit. When you check your credit score once a year, does not go against you. People go, oh, it's going to change my number. It's not going to change your number. If you have bank after bank after bank pulling your credit, absolutely, it's going to affect you because those inquiries and people don't understand why that is. What happens is bank, this is what happens. It's the pattern that banks see right when someone just ramps up all their debt and then files bankruptcy. So when you see a lot of inquiries and all of a sudden these charges and credit cards, everything's going up. It's typically when someone's already made it in, in their mind, not everyone, but it happens a lot. It's a pattern that that, that is why it affects your credit score. A lot of people ask that. One of the reasons, one of the reasons that it'll affect your credit score, those inquiries. So that's number one. Number two, understand your financials. Make sure you know what your uh, if you, production reports, like you were mentioning about wh- how much, what the fee is that you're collecting for that, understanding what your net income is. What, what do I get at the end of the day? Just stay on top. Don't rely on your office manager. Don't rely just on your accountant. Ask questions. I don't understand. Why is this number so low? Um, shouldn't it be higher? How do I make that change? Um, so that's another, another thing that, that I, would, I would keep in mind. And don't, don't be afraid. Number three would be don't be afraid of debt. It, I know that sounds that, you know, we don't just because I'm a banker doesn't mean I, I want you to have debt, but don't be afraid of it. And your building years, you're going to have it. Everybody has it. Some of them are afraid for me to pull their credit because they say, oh, you're going to see all this debt. Are you going to still be able to do my loan? What do I fall back on? Credit and cash flow. I always fall back. Do you make your payments? Are you struggling every month? Are you, are, do you feel like you're living paycheck to paycheck? Then probably borrowing $500,000 is probably not the best time for you to do that. Right? right. But if you feel that, oh, wow, I'm really doing great in this practice. My numbers are, are un- incredible and I'm ready to buy in or move or w- what you're having, then we're ready to do it. But do one at a time. Some of them will come in and say, okay, well, this doctor wants to sell me three practices. <laughs> oh, that's great. You're three years out of school and want to own three practices right up. Just take your time. Don't overstep. Just <laughs> Take things one thing at a time, make sure you master that before you start opening your eyes to other opportunities. And we do expansions, we do add-ons, we do acquisitions. I've had one doctor that was an associate making a great living and I didn't understand why he wanted to buy a practice. Why would you want to do that? Well, now he owns 16 practices. He did it over nine years. Took him a long time, but he did it the right way. And I went, okay, maybe you were right. <laughs> but at the time it sounded crazy, um, but there was a time and way to do it. He didn't go out and start nine practices or buy nine. He did them one at a time. And as he got traction and he knew he, had, he knew what model worked for him, he went, he moved on from there. Love it. Um, and I think that's it. I mean, other than that, it's, there's going to be things that pop up in their life, like life insurance and disability given this is, I'd say this is number four, right? So disability insurance is super important when you're a dentist, because what happens if you break your wrist, 
right? It's not like you and I who can still function properly, right? Now you can't do your dentistry. So insure, making sure your insurances are up to date because when you buy a practice or start a practice or borrow money, you're going to have to have it in place for the bank. Got it. Good list. That great list. Awesome. That a good list? And I didn't that even was I was off the cuff. That was, that was under pressure. <laughs> you rattled those off like that was like because I, I mean, you know, you've been doing this a while, so you know. Been you doing know, it a while. Don't know. say how many years. Twenty um, plus. Let's do that. So one other, uh, we haven't talked at all about real estate, and that becomes uh, a part of a lot of the the financing discussions. If a if a practice includes an office or real estate. As a banker, uh, mm-hmm. is real estate a positive, negative? Is it neutral? How do you look at real estate? I think real estate's great. Um, <clears throat> it's you talk. We talk about collateral. It collateralizes the the loan for the bank, uh, so it's nice to have both the practice and the building. And when you buy the building, the tenant is the one paying the bills. So we underwrite the loan based off the tenant, which is the practice anyway. Um, my only word of caution would be. If it's a younger, a newer student, or I mean, a newer doctor that's just out of school and they want to buy the practice, maybe hold off on the real estate right away. You don't need to take on that much debt when you're going to make that that rent payment. And you're going to get used to making that rent payment out of the practice. Eventually, you'll have enough of a down payment because on real estate we do require down payment a lot of times. We can do SBA loans and things like that. That's great. We can do almost 100% on those. But if you're looking at a conventional loan, usually you need to inject about 20% of that. And when you're when you're when you're looking at again, student debt, buying a practice, buying a home, there's just no reason to buy the real estate right away. Um, that's still going to be there and and a lot of times it's it doesn't behoove the seller financially tax-wise to to sell it right away. But we do like them. Um, one unique thing we do is when they're established over time and they own that business or they own the, the building is we can cash out. A lot of um, banks don't do that. And guess what we pay off when we cash out? Student loans. We pay off student loans, any personal debt they took on when they bought their house and now they're settled and their practice is doing great. They've got cash flow. And they say, you know what? We have equity. Can I borrow against it? And we absolutely do. We just, we will go up to 80% of that value and let them use that money for whatever they need to use it for. They want to fund their pension. They can do that. There's no, there are no stipulations on what, how they use that money when they cash out on real estate. If I am, if I'm a dentist and I'm looking for a banker, what should I look for? What should my expectations be of a good banker? And I, I'm prejudiced Right. Aubrey, you are a good banker. <clears throat> Thank you. you. I for appreciate a long that. Time. And why don't you just, what, what are the criteria for what a, a banking customer could reasonably expect from a banker? What should they look for? Well, um, I, the, I think for, for these doctors who are with patients all day long, efficiency, <laughs> getting back to them. If, if the doctor has a 10 minute, 10 minute window to, to talk to their banker and their banker doesn't get back to them for two or three days. That's not the right banker. You have to be able to understand where we work interesting hours when we specialize in this field. Yeah. Right. It's, we don't want to take away from their production and their patients just to answer simple questions. So a lot of communication via email. I have clients that text me. I mean, I'm more open to that. 
So how accessible they are is number one to me. Are they reliable? And, and what they present to you, did they present it to you the same way? They, they, did they put it in paper the same way they said it over the phone, right? Those are two different things. Uh, I like to give a, a, just what we call a proposal. And it says right on there, this is just, these are proposed terms. We, we'll go ahead and go to underwriting if you want to proceed. But just so you know, on here, if anything changes that's different from this proposal, you have every option to walk back. You have no fees. Everything will be waived. You can walk away. Um, because there could be something in loan committee that people say, uh, well, I don't know. I think we need to add this to this. And it's, it's now part of the condition of the loan. Well, you know, you have someone that says, well, you didn't talk about that then initially. So I like to make sure that I'm setting the expectation as opposed to saying, oh, we can do that. We got it. We can do that. No problem. And then come back and go, oh, you know what? We, re we really can't do that. So having the experience of knowing what to present to a borrower is super important because you don't, you know, I ask them, I have clients that will just say, I don't think I'm going to go with you guys, but could you just look at this proposal for me? I, this is my brother's cousin's sister's wife's nephew. <laughs> can you, can you please take a look at this and tell me if you think this guy's robbing me, you know, and, and I'll look at it and I'll say, no, I think it looks like a pretty straight up proposal, you know, or just no, it's not an approval. There's two different things. There's a conditional approval and there's a proposal. I should have added that to my tips for them, by the way, earlier when you asked me is understanding a proposal and a commitment to do financing, <laughs> two different things, two different things. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that would be, you know, how these, you know, when you're looking for a banker are, is everything they said, is, are they, are they following through and are they being honest and with integrity telling me what the potential pitfalls are? I like to ask people right up front, is there anything I should expect when I pull your credit? Any surprises? <laughs> anything? I didn't, I didn't <laughs> inhale, Audrey. I didn't. Yeah. I don't, is there is anything you want to tell me? I mean, I have some that say, um, I have great credit, fantastic uh -huh. credit. That's going to be a non-issue. And I'll go, okay, I'm going to do all the other work and I'm not going to pull your credit because you're shopping for banks. I'm going to do it. And then when you're ready to pull the trigger, I have to pull your credit. And then I'll say, you forgot about the four mortgage leads. Did, uh -huh. did you? Oh, really? Only, you only show up there. <laughs> so. Just, you know, having a real, yeah, realistic expectations is, is part of that. So I get that all the time. And then I have some that, that worry about their credit and they have fantastic credit. So we yeah. have both sides of that. So um, one of the things, Audrey, I'll say this unsolicited. One of the things that I appreciate, um, well, many things I appreciate you. One, your understanding of the dental industry is amazing. You get it. There's, I don't think there's a scenario that I could come up with that you haven't dealt with from a right. banking situation. So, a lot. It, so it makes it so easy to talk to you. Number two is uh, you are, I'm not gonna say you're always available because you do live a balanced life, but you are responsive, which I love <clears throat> is I always know that I can find you and you're gonna respond. And number three is uh, you're a straight shooter. You yep. tell like it is in a very nice way. Um, but you're- well, I appreciate that. I try to be nice about it. <laughs> But I, I appreciate that very, very much. Um, would you share with everybody where they can find you and where they can learn more about T-Bank? Okay, sure. Um, so we are um, based in Dallas, but we work nationally. So everything we do, you can go to uh, T-Bank, 
Com and find us there. You'll find our history. You'll find our background on, on each one of us. You'll find that uh, we have an SBA division and we are a preferred SBA lender. We have been for many years, which means we can process things a little quicker. You can also reach me on email, um, which I'm on a lot. Um, it's A-W-E-N-D-E-L at tbank.com um, or t.bank.com. You can get me either way. Um, and we're also, my contact information is also on the website. So you can go to, to that website. And I'll I will put give you my, both I'll my put, cell phone and my uh, office number if you need it as well. I'll so put both office. of those in the show notes of the episode, oh, Audrey. Okay. So yeah, so people can just go right to the episode and look at all these links. It'll be Perfect. easy to find. And, and really am somebody that I work a lot remotely. So cell phone is a, not a problem. If anybody needs me, they can always call me on my cell. Love it. Hey, thank you for your, I learned a lot today, man. This That's was supposed good. to be young Dennis, but I got a, I learned Same. a lot today. So thank you for <laughs> sharing this. This is a, a treasure and something I know that uh, people will go back to this is like a tutorial on, on banking for dentistry. So thank you for being concise and a clear communicator and sharing your, your wisdom today and uh, all you do for us and for the dental industry. Absolutely. Thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate this. And I really appreciate the advice that you're giving to these students and young graduates. It's, it's very important and to get them started on the right foot. It's really important. Thank, Thank you, Audrey. Audrey. All right, guys. Thanks for joining us for this Mentor of the Month podcast sponsored by Crown Council. This is just one tool available to the Crown Council membership that helps dental teams build a culture of success. That's our mission and purpose is to provide a place for dental teams to come together and learn the skills needed to develop your most valuable asset, the people, those people who work in your practice. As always, if you're interested in being part of this group or want more information about the tools available to the membership, go to www.crowncouncil.com or call us 1-800-276-9658. Thanks.